Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. There we go. We're live and we're cranking. We're recording. We're getting this thing underway. It's been uh, a couple days. I've been out of the podcast chair, so I'm stoked to be back in it and uh, to be starting off this flurry of amazing podcasts with an amazing guest. He is a marketing scientist, a statistician, might even say a methodologist and we'll explain some of these things coming up it's all about the metrics baby that's what we'll be talking about today metrics and finance and numbers and how it all ties into marketing you know his work has been reviewed in the harvard business review the wall street journal cfo magazine um, he's got published research in the journal of marketing uh, and in several other publications co-founded a company called zodiac which actually got acquired by nike and He's currently the co-founder of Theta Equity Partners, as well as the assistant professor of marketing at Emory University. And if that didn't get you excited, his name is Dan McCarthy. How are you, sir? Welcome. I'm doing great. Class is finished on Monday, so I'm uh, even more energized than before. And uh, yeah, very excited to talk uh, all things marketing and finance and, and everything else uh, with you. Absolutely. So, so school's almost out, or it is out. You're done? You got a little bit more so to do? Still a f- there's one assignment that they still have to finish up. So got some grading left to do, but uh, yeah, for all intents and purposes, the class is over. So uh, (laughs) great semester. Well, congrats. And uh, to your point, yeah, the class, it's literally called customer lifetime valuation. And and Mm -hmm. all we cover is acquisition, retention, all the sort of things that we'll be talking about today. So I'm a, yeah, yeah. I put my teaching where my mouth is. <laughs> good, good. No, that's perfect. Yeah. And, and, and this is the, ne- the next part, that which I was just going to say, which is perfect. The theme for the show, we're talking customer, lifetime value. We're talking about understanding your customers, seeing what the numbers actually mean, looking at the right numbers, really kind of merging the metrics and the magic of marketing together. So um, I want to I start this show the way we start every show. I'm going to grab this thing. It's heavy. So one second. Okay, here it is. It's Thor's hammer. Go ahead, take this and smash for me some kind of, you know, marketing myth, myth around customers, things that misconceptions that you see out there that just drive you crazy and you want to set the record straight once and for all. Yeah, I think one of the big ones is just that, uh, you know, oftentimes within uh, very large organizations, you know, the CFO is traditionally. Uh, kind of on a on a higher footing than than marketing. You know, that marketing it, it serves an important function. You know, but ultimately, you know, it's more about uh, or all about. You know, who's going to get what mailers? Let's think about our creatives. You know, manage customer experience. Yeah. Uh, and, and my personal view is uh, that marketing should be on equal footing with finance. And uh, I think that there's been some reasons why uh, it hasn't been that way in the past. But I think with some of the uh, more recent breakthroughs that uh, that we've been having on the uh, on the marketing side, uh, just kind of better aligning marketing and finance, uh, that it will kind of put them on much more equal footing than it has in the past. Equal footing. Now that's that's an interesting conversation to have in a boardroom to have inside of a company. How how have they not been on the same footing? And maybe this is more even historical. How how has it been in the past? What do you think leads to this being the case, anyways? And what's changed that 
if he gets marketing in that in that spot? I guess one of the easiest ways, yeah, I, I tend to think about it is kind of another uh, marketing myth that I bash, which is um, that metrics like customer lifetime value uh, should only be used for purely tactical purposes. Uh, I think there are a lot of companies that are, are waking up to the importance of, of measures like that, you know, that basically quantify you know, how, how valuable individual customers are and, and work that into, you know, a company's strategy. Uh, but I would say the, the use cases are, are far more than just tactical. Uh, they can be very high level and, uh, and really govern, you know, whether you should acquire a company, you know, what price you should pay, you know, things that traditionally would be, uh, uh, done purely using uh, just kind of traditional financial valuation models. So yeah, I think for the same reason, uh, you know, marketing hasn't really gotten you know, quite out of that pure uh, technical, you know, narrow scope that it's had historically. You know, and I even wonder, right, because I, I, I've definitely heard it said that, you know, marketing used to have all these different P's in their, in their job description, but now we kind of just do the promotion side of it. it have we always been so tactical in the marketing world or do you see, you know, what kind of shifts do you see? Cause I know you, you're able to observe a lot of different situations. You know, what is the, the changing trend that gets us out of just being so tactical? Uh, to me, it's really being able to speak finances language. Uh, that right. you know, finances, you know, they, they've thought a lot about how you should value assets and, and how we can think about, you know, things using uh, kind of very time-tested uh, financial methods. And, uh, you know, kind of what, what I would posit is, you know, essentially what, what marketing can bring to the table is this really good forecast of what a company's customer base is going to do in the future. And, yeah, it makes intuitive sense that if I can tell you what, what the, a company's customer base is going to do in the future, that could really inform those valuation models. And uh, I think that that's really the, the main crucial insight that uh, you know, is, is somewhat simple, but you know, kind of taking it to its logical conclusion uh, is what I think could open up this world of, of opportunity. Tell me of this so, voodoo yeah. witchcraft you speak of, this forecasting the future. How does this work? Uh, yeah, a crystal concrete example, uh, FP&A. It's something you know, most companies have uh, whole divisions that, that do. And, uh, and what FP&A is FP&A? Stands for financial, okay. Yeah, it stands for uh, financial planning and analysis. And they're usually the people who are in charge of, uh, you know, say, quarterly or annual guidance. You know, they want to understand, um, you know, what are we going to see over the next year? And then let's plan our budgeting accordingly. You sure. Know, so typically, you may be starting uh, you know, a month ago. That's when everyone starts thinking about their, their 2020 annual plan and, uh you know, who's going to get how much budget? What should we set the quotas at? Well, you know, oftentimes uh, a big part of that is going to be driven off of what are sales going to be? You know, how can we think about our cost structure? And, uh, and that can help us, you know, decide how much budget we can afford to give to, to different divisions. And, and so if we just kind of hammer, just focus purely on that, like say one year revenue forecast, okay. uh, you know, oftentimes they'll go about that, that forecast in a, in a very top-down way, you know, um, this is how we feel about the market. It's going to be a bit healthier this coming year. You know, the NIH is going to get more funding. Um, it just, in general, it's not, uh, it, what it's not is it's not bottoms up. Yeah. You know, what we mm. would say is 
you know, next year's revenue, it's got to come from customers. Those customers are, uh, have to either have been customers that they currently have or customers that they will acquire over the course of the next year. All those customers, they have to place orders and then they have to spend some amount on, on each of the orders. Like we know that. I mean, that's right. purely an accounting identity. And so, so the magic would be, uh, let's take everything that we know uh, about marketing science and apply it to uh, what future customer acquisitions will be, uh, customer retention for, ev for every one of our customers, uh, you know, order rates and, and, and basket size. And if you have very good models for each and every one of those processes, that will give you uh, a revenue forecast for the year. So, so that's how we would go about it. And uh, if we did some sort of sensitivity analysis to, you know, which they will often do, uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, that their uh, the forecast that they give, say, to to Wall Street is is realistically achievable. Uh, let's just sensitize each of those numbers. You know, maybe we won't quite acquire as many customers as we thought, but in general, it gives you this very diagnostic framework for that revenue forecast, which uh, you know really would resonate with um, with the finance department very well. Right. So you're helping them out and be a little bit more accurate, so they're not just kind of putting the finger in the mouth and holding up to the wind and hope, hoping that based on sort of the top down factors that they know what they're talking about, but instead you're taking it, taking it to the lowest level of, to the customer itself and knowing just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, you know, that there's going to be purchases that have to happen, the average size of those purchases, uh, and then understanding what you got going on down there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it imposes a discipline on that forecast. You know, so if, if the FP&A department comes in and says, you know, we think next year sales are going to be a hundred million dollars. Well, we can say, all right, well, let's just kind of break it down. You know, uh, how many customers does that imply? You know, at what price point are you going to sell? And as long as they can uh, justify that forecast with reasonable figures, you know, consistent with what we've seen historically, uh, then I, I, I'm fully on board. Uh, I'd also say top-down factors, it's not like it needs to be an either or. Uh, so things like mm. GDP growth, you know, they can play a role. And, and what I would posit is uh, that's just going to influence uh, the propensity of customers to acquire services, you know, to, to, to place more orders. And so, you know, we can have a data-driven way of being able to insert those into our customer model. Uh, I think the main thing that's been missing is that uh, these models have not been driven off of customer behavior at all. So, um, so what that, specific I think behavior kind of do you tie into? So you know there's certain order sizes and amounts, but what kind of behavior? What 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 do you what activities of the behavior do you get the most in, insight out of, and then what kind of insights do you get? It's a great question, uh, and this actually does go back to. You know, what marketing departments have spent a lot of time thinking about, because yeah. this is kind of the essence of a CLB calculation. Uh, and in, in general, uh, we found that uh, one of the most important sources of data is just previous transactional behavior. So, okay. you know, w watch what they do, not what they say. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, to the extent that there are, you know, say, demographic or psychographic uh, characteristics of customers that lead some to be better than others. You know, oftentimes, as long as you've observed, you know, say six, 12 months of their previous purchase behavior, and you have a, a realistic model for, for the customer, that model will say, huh, you know, I can tell that this person uh, is behaving 
uh, above baseline. You know, I may not necessarily know why exactly, but, but I can infer that it's the case. And so I'm going to forecast that this customer will continue to behave better than your average customer right. uh, into the future. Uh, I think where it gets harder, so, so for all the customers that have been around for a reasonable amount of time, which need not be too long, uh, I, I feel like transactional behavior is going to get you probably 80% of the way there. Okay. Um, the other 20% for the tenured customers, and then, you know, obviously a, a larger share for the young customers where we haven't really observed very much or anything at all. Uh, that's where we have to fall back on uh, things like demographics and psychographics and uh, and that promoter score, other measures uh, measures of uh, what the customers had done uh, at the time of their first purchase. So right. yeah, that's a, a whole separate. <laughs> that's a, I could speak for an hour about about that as well. Uh, and to, and to uh, your point, that's the twenty percent. So I so a good chunk of it is the the other side of it is the transactional can accomplish most of what you're looking for. Is it, is it just a, a a matter of the instead of looking at a larger bigger picture you're just looking at the the aggregate of the details down below and the in particular purchase behavior aren't people not doing that do they not just assume based on current per, you know previous purchase history that they can't then model out based on that are they just are they kind of pie in the sky is the top down just so you know disconnected that they're not because it seems like a no-brainer that you'd want to look at what previous customers have done and figure, okay, well, based on what we know about them, they'll continue this behavior. Or is that that disconnect between marketing and finance? Yeah, I haven't seen it very much. There's a few companies who are starting to think in that way, but traditionally those CLV models are within the marketing department. And traditionally they don't speak a whole lot with, with the finance department. And then the question is uh, on the finance department side, you know, why is it that they haven't, you know, uh, kind of why hasn't there been uptake uh, from within them? Yeah. Uh, Traditionally, they're not mining CRM data, Uh the finance department. Right. So it really is this kind of a silo issue that, uh, you know, that I think has has held back progress. I think, you know, the other issue is, you call it 20 years ago, you know, the world was a pretty different place in the sense of we didn't have the ability to tag and track customers nearly as well as, as we currently do. So there's a lot of businesses where, you know, maybe 20 years ago, it would have been tough, you know, because uh, you know, a lot of transactions were happening through brick and mortar, couldn't tra- track that behavior back to individual customer IDs. Well, you know, now they've got a loyalty program. Now 50% of their sales are coming through digital. You know, we've got the ability to, uh, to kind of tie those data sets together. So right. now we can do it. But, you know, finance, they've, they've done it one way um, for quite a while, and it could be very hard for them to make such a large change to how they, uh, how they go about that forecast. But such an important data to connect to, the, I mean, the CRM data, I mean, I think you kind of gave me an aha moment when you brought that up. You're right. I mean, even today, a lot of companies, finance is still playing in their QuickBooks and their SA, in whatever tool they're using, right? And then... Um, Mm-hmm. sales is over in CRM land and, and maybe marketing as well. And their marketing automation tied to CRM, but they're not necessarily talking unless you went and bought financial force on Salesforce or something else, or you have some pretty smart integration, you may not have them talking to each other. And so finance doesn't have the, the context for what those numbers mean, or they may just have the invoices, right? I, I think back to when we transitioned from projects to more recurring work even here at Cheshire we 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 had to to think about it for a second because finance may have sent out invoices but 
they weren't necessarily aware of that there was an ongoing contract and that's what that meant. And so um, really not just looking at maybe CRM data, cause that might show one deal. Okay. You close this one deal, but yeah, it's recurring and it's been recurring for 24 months, but, but accounting had yeah. that data and they knew, wow, this is a top customer. They've been spending for 24 months where sales was like, Oh, they only did one deal with us. Well, one deal, but it kept recurring. So it was like this disconnect. Um, and only through talking to, from both sides that we were able to actually model out appropriately you know, that customer lifetime value. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the marketing people that we've spoken to, so again, you know, I had the, thankfully the perspective of uh, interacting with a lot of different marketing and marketing analytic departments through, uh, through Zodiac, um, you know, probably a good hundred companies or so. And, uh, and it was surprising on many levels that even, even within the marketing departments, oftentimes the, the statistical models that they use are, uh, are much worse than you might have thought that they would be. Um, right. you know, even if firms like you know, very large telecommunications firms, uh, mobile gaming firms tend to be better. Uh, but again, it's <laughs> all they got. <laughs> they have to be better. Yeah, it's, it's like just these different levels of uh, uh, roadblock. You know, right. they, for one, does marketing have the model? <laughs> for two, is marketing speaking with finance and <laughs> right. is finance willing to adopt it? And, and so, you know, I think it kind of makes sense that, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot of progress to date, but I'm genuinely optimistic that, you know, with all the work that, you know, I've really been trying to, to push along with, uh, you know, Wharton professor, Peter Fader, who I believe was a, a previous did. guest on the show. Yeah. Um, you know, that we're, we're really pushing hard to, to basically get, uh, to elevate that role of the CMO. Yeah. You know, the work that both of you are doing and sort of pushing this forward is fantastic. And I think it'll just, it, it's almost like, you know, they say the end of the universe is when it stops expanding and it all comes rushing back toward. I almost feel like that's what business is doing. You know, all these different silos, but now they're getting closer and closer. We know sales and marketing are getting closer. Um, they speak somewhat a similar language, kind of. It's a romance mm -hmm. language maybe, but finance sometimes comes in with a totally different dialogue. So it's, I, I kind of see them all coming back together. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you're you know, helping lead that charge with, with Peter and, and doing that. So, and there's a course, this, this is specifically the course you're teaching or at least one of them that is on this topic. Uh, this, yes. This is one of the topics that I teach. Um, I spend a lot of the course on, so it is, you know, because it's a formal marketing course, yeah. you know, I'll spend a handful of lectures on, you know, customer acquisition strategies, you know, customer retention and development strategies, but uh, I'll spend most of the course on uh, modeling of customer behavior. So, you know, we'll start with customer retention. How do we do that right? You know, and then, and then move on to, you know, how customers spend and, uh, and all the, the, the challenges that, that come up, you know, you know, when you're trying to do that modeling at the, at the individual customer level um, and then kind of zoom it back out to, to CBCV, you know, customer-based corporate valuation. You know, we're really trying to take these marketing models and, and elevate it to, um, kind of thoughts about uh, companies' health or attractiveness uh, as a whole, you know, across the entire organization. Right. Because if you understand their customers, you can understand that company better and make that, that dotted line. I'm sure the investors are happy to, to know that the numbers are that much more accurate. Um, if you're, if you're tying down to the base layer of actual customer behavior. Yeah. I think honestly, it's that word accurate that uh, mm -hmm. really, that we really hone in on that uh, our, our goal with these models. And I think, you know, hopefully FP and A's 
uh, the FP&A department's goal is to make accurate forecasts. You know, we we need to know, you know what what are sales and profits and and, and everything else going to be next year, the year after, the year after that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, that's really what forms our strategy and and what we should should or shouldn't be doing. So uh, that's exactly the sort of thing that uh, that we we obsess over and that we consider to be you know, kind of the yardstick that we evaluate our performance on. Got it. Now, now the path you took us through on on the the course, the acquisition first makes sense. You gotta gotta acquire. Retention also makes sense. It, it's cost effective to just keep existing customers. And then it's almost like you've established those two beachheads and then you spend the rest of the time on the modeling and understanding the behavior better. Is that, is that the case? Well, so technically first I want to get everyone on board with the philosophy because I do feel like yeah, uh, yeah, don't if, you, yeah, if you don't buy into the philosophy, uh, there's this question of, all right, I'm doing, I'm going through the motions with these models, but what am I doing it for? You know, so it's kind of, can just get everyone on the same page as to you know, what's the real opportunity here you know, of thinking about the world in a customer centric way, which I know was, you know, probably the most important topic that uh, you know, Professor Fader had been covering. Right. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'll spend a good two lectures just on customer centricity and, you know, you've taken that course on product and brand. It's very important, but now let's look at things from the customer perspective because the world is, is getting more and more competitive you need every advantage you can get and here's another lever that you can and should pull. So, you know, once everyone's kind of bought into that idea that uh, the customer is extremely important to how I should think about company strategy, uh, that's when I kind of jump into the modeling. Um, Cause you can't, you can't manage what you can't measure, you know? So um, totally. Yeah, totally. So, so once we have the, yeah. yeah so onto that, so you, you've established the philosophy and then you get into modeling where do you start? And is this, is this like, you know, 801 level course? Like it, it, what kind of prereqs are, are, are people experiencing before they get to this? And then after that, I love to dive into like how you approach modeling for like the first time. It's a really good question. Um, I wanted to give the students models that were good enough that they could actually take them and use them and their jobs, that they're not kind of the, the toy models that, are brittle and, and, aren't, and aren't robust, you know, will we'll break very easily. Right. So, so I kind of went out on the limb a little bit <laughs> and uh, I Good. gave them these more powerful, I started slow, but then quickly sped it up. Um, you know, what we call hierarchical Bayesian models. Uh, they, they ended up with tools that um, they were hierarchical Bayesian models. <laughs> so, um, so some of the math, I think because this is a course that, Really, the, the main prerequisite is kind of a, you know, introductory statistics course. Okay. Um, there were a couple of the models where now do you, you have know, to I, actually I very, do you have to actually pass that course, or can you just at least take that statistics course? <laughs> I'm assuming that they passed it. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. yeah, if they if they failed that course, then that might also just be like, huh, yeah. <laughs> I have a little bit of an issue. Like, want to go a little more creative? Or, yeah, a little more heavy on the the, the business side. Okay, yeah, so prereq yeah. is the stats, and then and then you start introducing. So they've got some sense of understanding on numbers and stats, and then are you, is this like class three? You're like, okay, let's talk models, or do you have to establish the baseline of what? Like, what should people even listening know? Like, 
like, you know, almost like we're day three of that third course, haven't used models, haven't really thought about them, or maybe we have, we just don't recognize that we're using them. Yep. Yeah. I just start with the easiest problem. Yeah. So I do start with retention actually, because it's okay. uh, a little bit easier to get our arms around. And, uh, and I, I just start with a basic, uh, a basic kind of what's called a probabilistic model. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of the, the fundamental building block that, that we'll use for, for every model, uh, whether it's retention, acquisition, ordering, or spend. So you know, first, just getting everyone on board with what a probability model actually is. Okay. And then, you know, just bringing it to life in a very simple way. And then successively kind of peeling off the layers of the onion you know, to, to make it, um, you know, the version that would actually be robust and, and predictive. Um, so you know, that's kind of the sequence that I'll take them through. Is that um, something you could do now? Like when you talk about re- customer retention, you know, what, what's sort of like that base model then that you, you propose? Yeah, so the base model, it basically, what it posits is that when every single person is born as a customer, they have a certain underlying, you know, propensity to stay with the firm. You can think of it as like a, a different level of loyalty. And we never get to see what that, you know, propensity is. So true. So all we get to see is, you know, some people, they keep re- renewing. You know, some people, they keep making the purchases. And, and we just have to say, you know, based on wh- whatever we're able to see, that would, that would imply to me that this is what the person's propensity is. Now, once I know that person's propensity, you know, then I can forecast what they're going to do into the future. Uh, but, you know, that's really the exercise is to kind of take all that really high variance observable data and, and kind of get this, uh, this read on, on what those underlying propensities are. Are there any key indicators you've seen from examples and customers and of, of like things that just really are the 80 of the 20 of just these things tend to affect or, or at least unmask that loyalty number? Uh, so oftentimes, if you've seen a cohort's behavior for, again, kind of four to six mm-hmm. months, as long as it's not uh, a heavily seasonal business or you know, a business where your know, customers prepay for the year, okay. and so they're, you know, proverbial asses glued to the seat for a year. Um, <laughs> That's got to be harder, right? Because you only have, you have like one moment at the end of the year to, it all comes down to this. Yeah. So, so then um, to, to have a really accurate prediction of what one year retention is going to be, you either have to rely um, on, on what you know about other cohorts that preceded that cohort right. and what they did at the one year point and then make an adjustment for uh, it. It would be ideal if you could make some adjustment for the level of engagement or activity of those customers with the service, if you're able to observe that. So, you know, um, you know, there's been some really interesting work um, that, that ties uh, activity to, to, to the renewal decision. Um, but fundamentally the idea is imagine we're thinking about a mobile app or, you know, even more basically a, a, like a gym membership. Mm-hmm. If you have somebody who's been going to the gym every single day of the week for a year, that person's going to be more likely to renew right. than another person who, you know, all right, new year's resolution. All right, I'll sign up for the gym. They're in there for, you know, a, a few weeks and then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, probably <laughs> then, a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're gone. Uh, you know, they'll be less likely to renew. So there's a, an adjustment that we can make where it's like we, we get to see activity 
and the renewal decision for the older cohorts. For the newer cohorts, we get to see their activity, you know, up until that first renewal decision. And so you can kind of play this connected dots of you know, A is to B as C is to D uh, to, to, to get a better read on uh, one year retention there. Yeah. And that loyalty, you know, in my head, when you first described it, I thought almost like uh, I was going to give it a, a, a Greek letter or something. This is the, the funky L and that that's this, everyone comes in and they've got a different level they're at. Now, now it doesn't, yep. it's not necessarily static though, right? Cause y- you could, do marketing to them and encourage them to come to the gym or do whatever activity more, maybe adopt the software more so that they're more likely to keep going. So do you see that as a number that their loyalty can change or is there, is it like a base plus some, how does that work? Like, like is is, is their destiny set in stone when they sign up or is there hope that we can improve that? Yeah, kind of like everything, the truth's in the middle, but uh, empirically (laughs) from the companies that we've worked on, uh, it can be surprisingly hard to change someone's baseline. Really? Marketing departments, they love to feel in control. You know, they want to, <laughs> we can just change, change everybody. You know, if we just did that next marketing action. And uh, unfortunately, it's hard. It, it's hard to make sure. uh, a disloyal customer loyal. Um, so you know, essentially what these models will, will do is they take all this previous behavior and they'll use that to make this forecast into the future. And implicitly what it's assuming is that your performance will be consistent. Your performance as a company is going to be consistent with what it's done historically. Got it. Um, and that's what becomes hard. It's not saying that you know, the marketing department can't do anything, but all of the goodness that the marketing department's been able to generate in the customers, uh, that it could be hard to dramatically improve on, on that previous performance. Right. So um, we all hope that we can kind of beat the model, beat, beat what we did last year. But uh, in some sense, that's the benchmark. You know, the benchmark is not zero. Yeah, and I, I hear you. As much as we'd like to think we're in control, like you're saying, uh, you know, going back to the simplicity of the gym model, and I get it. Some people here are like, I sell year-long sales cycle software, but totally get it. But like the simplicity of the gym membership, we can all kind of picture that. And you're right. If you've signed up on a whim – for the holidays, you know, it doesn't necessarily bode well for you. Uh, but if you went every day that month, then maybe you're in that cohort of like you've changed, you've changed your life or if you went spir- periodically, you're probably going to drop it when you get a chance. Uh, so yeah, interesting, interesting to, to know that it isn't as movable as we think. Reminds me a little bit of a, a quote. I, um, someone said this the other day, how they find you is how they'll leave you, you know, which, maybe speaks to the, how this is a little more static than we want it to be. And if you, and I like the gym membership as well, because you're right, there's nothing really new. If you think about your basic gym membership, it's not like, I mean, I know best fitness does pizza to try to keep people out of the gym, but uh, there's nothing too new that you're going to revolutionize that number. It's once you get it to that point where it's at, it's probably going to continue there. And then the good news is though, that probably makes modeling that much more straightforward. Well, that's the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my PhD is in statistics. It's actually not even in marketing. I mean, obviously oh, wow. now, uh, yeah, I've, I'm a marketing scientist and I write marketing papers, but um, my formal training was in statistics. And, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a statement like that uh, just kind of out of the blue. It really is that's just true. empirically, you know, this is the assumption that our model makes and empirically 
the model predicts really well. <laughs> and so huh. what does that mean? You know, it means that the status quo tends to persist maybe a little bit more than what some people might, might have you believe. Uh, to your point as Isn't well. Isn't that true um, though in life and everything, right? Status quo. People say, oh, buying this software or buying, or buying this choice or this choice, but they forget about the status quo of do nothing or, you know, how it has always been is, is also a, a choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing is, you know, when we take it up to the level of corporate valuation, uh, it's even harder to change the baseline because you, know, you, you can't do things like, uh, you know, offer, you know, new customer promotions that will boost acquisition. But, you know, those promotions aren't, aren't free. <laughs> they, <laughs> they cost the firm. Sure. And, uh, and the customers that they bring in may be worse, you know, because these are the customers where, you know, it was harder That's to bring true. them in. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's only because we gave them this juicy discount that they're you know, acquiring. So, so what that would say is, you know, we, we may have the ability to move the pin for, for acquisition there, but, uh, but it's going to cost us. And from a corporate valuation standpoint, it's a really big question mark, you know, what the overall value expansion was from, from something like that. I could see that so, being smart to make sure you address that in valuation. Otherwise, you know, the company you're acquiring might just flood its flood its tanks with, you know, crappy customers that are going to churn hope probably shortly after the, the ink is signed on that acquisition. So being aware of like, who are your core customers? And this is the best, you know, cohort set up here, but then, Oh, okay. You got a bunch of like very cheap customers just now that, that are like a risk for churning. It's maybe understanding maybe some of the multiples need to change based on what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, my, my personal view is um, there are, way, are principled ways to, to create value through acquisition and retention use cases. But uh, the guardrails is oftentimes some principled experimental procedure, you know, where you, know, you use a randomized, uh, you know, treatment versus control group, you know, where you do the thing for some people, you don't do it for some other people. Right. You know, you, you properly control for you know, who's getting what. And just see, you know, uh, was this ROI positive for me to, to make this change? Right. Um, but, but yeah, you know, all of that collective wisdom, uh, a lot of it is baked into what the company's been doing so far, you know, unless they were total dopes. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, it happens. The status quo, yeah, the status quo basically represents the best effort of everyone on that team up until that point. And so, so can you do better? You definitely should. But um, yeah, I think that that's just kind of, I think why it might be a little bit harder than, uh, than it seems at first blush. So let me ask you that again. So status quo is the, represents, or at least in the model, it represents the best effort of everyone. I guess you're assuming everyone's putting their best effort. And they're... Well, it's, it's just baked into that historical data. Because you know, okay. all those uh, okay. marketing touch points, all those acquisition strategies, they are what generated that previous data. So yeah, so the model is basically saying, yep, you know, given that this is my best guess of what, what we'll see in the future. And, uh, and so it's essentially saying, you know, all those acquisition and retention strategies that had been implemented before, you know, that, uh, you know, they'll largely uh, kind of persist into the future. That makes sense. And I, I could see why you would, you would indicate that, you know, 80% of that chunk of data can come from you know the the existing or the historicals can really provide a lot of that uh makes sense you know if selling cereal you've sold cereal for 
hundred years, you have a pretty good sense, you know, seeing where the markets change, but then cereal, cereal, cereal and different brands and you've seen it all. Whereas like a brand new company, um, you might model it after someone else that's similar to them, but then it would be a lot harder to, to kind of get some accurate data. Is that the There's case? More uncertainty. More, more yeah. uncertainty. That's well said. Yeah. Yeah. For corporate valuation purposes, uh, we found that uh, we need at least three and a half years of transactional behavior to you know, feel that we can do a good job of predicting, you know, one, two years ahead. Got so, um, so when you get less than that, then, you know, the forecasts are going to get shaky. Um, right. I think you know, the companies, they can pivot more. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's much more likely that you know, things will be dramatically different in the future. So, you know, we'll be the first to say when, nope, <laughs> either, you know, we'll, we'll give you our best guess, but we you have a big asterisk next to it right. uh, versus when like, yep, you know, we'll, we'll probably do a reasonably good job here. Plus or minus 30%. <laughs> Margin of error is gigantic uh, toss of coin. That always bugs me when, um, tangent alert, uh, when the weather forecast is a 50% chance for rain. Because doesn't that mean it's like a coin toss or am I just interpreting that incorrectly? I suppose you would be the one to ask that. Yeah, in theory, what that means is every time they give a forecast where they say 50%, that half the time it does end up raining. Um, right. And if they had put 30%, that, you know, 30, or 30 out of every 100 days, it would rain. <laughs> right. So, uh, so that would be the calibration test. But uh, my understanding is that it's um, very, very conservative. Uh, that the weather forecasts they tend to to put out probabilities that are higher than the true underlying <laughs> probability of rain. So when they just fake news it so, up, it's actually a forty three percent chance for rain, but they're just gonna bump it up. You don't know weather, but I'm just saying, like, doesn't that mean technically they're they're flipping a coin? Is it gonna rain today? I have no idea. It could, it might <laughs> not. Fifty percent chance. Come on. <laughs> I think their models are are pretty. Re they can be reasonably good. But okay. I think uh, there's also this question of um, of utility to to the consumers that um, exactly you know what's the cost of being right and what's the cost of being wrong and uh, and there it may actually be utility maximizing to put out a higher probability because they know worst case someone brings an umbrella that they didn't need you know but uh, the alternative of getting rained on <laughs> is you know, is a lot worse so. Uh, so I think there's some, there's some wisdom behind that. that uh, yeah, a little bit of human behavior. But you know if they say 80% chance the, the supermarkets are now flooded with people buying milk and bread and things there. It's so crazy. I'm up in New Hampshire. I know you have a little bit of cold going on now in Atlanta, but um, we've got snow and ice and we're just you – know, as much as we're used to it, you still get people going out and getting that bread just in case – just in case the store yeah. is closed for two weeks and it's never been closed for two weeks, but just in case. You never know. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things we, we bring up stats and I wanted to ask you about this is the idea of, you know, KPIs and a lot of times in marketing, we're looking at, we have a lot of stats now, right? We've got marketing automation tools tying into CRM. Now we've got data out the wazoo. And I think sometimes mm -hmm. we get unfocused and, Maybe, maybe not pick the right KPIs. What's your, how, have you seen a lot of that? Are there certain things you, you look for or how do you isolate? What are really the, the levers that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, so the, the sort of KPIs that, that we'll often see are 
uh, or at least that, that we've seen in marketing departments are uh, myopic and, uh, and what I would call kind of intermediate measures. So it's not that they're not important. You should certainly keep track of them, but they're not the most fundamental measures that, you know, would be, you know, rows one through five on your, on your spreadsheet. Right. You know? Um, so, so the ones that we'll often see are, are measures like, um, if you're in the ad bidding department, uh, what is same day sales? Yeah. So I'm spending a certain amount on customer acquisition. Tell me how much sales my, you know, my customer acquisition dollars brought in. And, um, right. and that, that is fundamentally not the right outcome measure to be focusing on. Um, you know, ultimately if, uh, if I'm bringing in customers that could bring about a lot of future value, you know, that's going to be ignored by a model that's only looking at current that's value. That's true. If you're looking at like who bought the cheap thing today, you might miss out on the customers they're going to buy repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, longer term measures of, of customer health, you know, they'll, they'll translate into, you know, cumulative improvement over time, but because mm -hmm. you oftentimes won't see that in, in a model that is purely focusing on, you know, spend today, revenue today, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those, those customers may, may be ignored. Interesting. So you said, how do you combat that's an example that? of one? Oh, go ahead. Example. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. A new, a new model. You know, we need to move to mm -hmm. a framework where we're trying to, you know, for the, the model would basically, the world that it would posit is we're making investments today. And we're going to get some future stream of revenue over a longer window of time. It need not be, you know, until when the customer churns, but you know, just a longer, a longer window of time. Six months mm. is better than than one day. So, uh, you know, one year would be even better. So, yeah, take some measure of, you know, what is the the impact of my marketing spend today on on the next one year's worth uh, of value, and mm. uh, I'll have that guide you know, my my decision making. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, I've seen I've seen some models um, work really well in that regard, especially as they tie into freemium model. You know, the people I got today, there is no value today. So what what is the life? It's almost like it forces that lifetime discussion. Um, yep. And then it's, yeah. then it's a matter of what's the window you're looking at when you run that report later on to see how much how much value are are they capturing? What is the behavior? Do they buy every? you know, three, six months, like language learning software is one, you know, do they do the beginner, then the intermediate, then the advanced over the next couple of years, or is it just, they buy one or not, or they just got your free mm -hmm. software. And then to your point, you don't just want to give out the free software. You want to find the sources of acquisition that are related to the ones that will have the most value. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Hmm. Yeah. And the freemium example is a good one. Uh, you, Spotify, they had some wonderful disclosures in their investor day presentation Whoa, about tell me. the efficacy. Yeah. I mean, they, they basically were showing, um, all right, you know, we, we bring in new people, uh, to the, you know, to the ad supported plan, you know, what percent of them convert into paid plans, you know, over time. And so they had a whole bunch of these little kind of whisper lines. Um, they all started zero obviously, because you know, if, if you, adopted into the ad supported plan, you're, you're not in the paid plan, but you know, the hope would be very quickly that all those lines go to hundred percent. Now clearly yeah. that's never going to happen, <laughs> but, uh, 
But Spotify does an amazingly good job at converting people from their ad-supported plan to, to their paid plan. Mm. And uh, I think the fact that they are paying such close attention to these metrics uh, that they're even putting them in their investor day presentations is a sign to the markets that, you know, we take this stuff super seriously and right. there's all this work, you know, that they're doing on the back end to, to make sure that, you know, that those, uh, those, those lines get as close to one as they can. Um, but, uh, you know, what we can see uh, on the front end, which is what a good metric should do is, all right, you know, you did all that stuff. How does that translate into your conversion curve? You know, which right. is ultimately what that curve is. So I think those are the more fundamental measures that can help us, uh, you know, just get get a cleaner read on on the health of the customer base. That makes a lot of sense. Have you ever used Spotify or any of those those apps? You know, I, I used it a little bit. Um, I'll be the first to say I, I was one of the people who did not convert. Oh, you were in the <laughs> so, did not convert cohort. I was in the opposite. So tell me about your experience. I you know I'm just more of a. It's actually I, I use uh, YouTube Music. Um, I found that. I had full control over uh, the songs that, that could be played. You don't have to, you know, obviously suck up all your data plan um, you know, by you know, playing, uh, playing the actual videos. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I found it just to be a better fit for me to have access to the entire library of, of YouTube. Um, yeah, but uh, just so do you their, pay for that? Is it like a, pay, a paid subscription to uh, YouTube? I do. Yeah. Got it. D- does that, yep. does the, um, the ad list, youtube video come included with that like do you uh on the yes i got youtube red which i believe comes with okay i got that too yeah the ads are so terrible on youtube it was worth just getting rid of them for twelve (laughs) dollars yeah i know yeah i think that's uh you know i'm sure that they have done a lot of work on the back end to <laughs> to set it just right you know i'm sure you i wouldn't get, know wanna... I'm, I'm on red too <laughs> i was like forget <laughs> about this. i just want to see this i don't want to see your stupid video um so okay so you found that that was a better tool uh um for your for your use case for me i'd always done the uh, those other ones where you couldn't really choose your song and i i would buy them every now and then on itunes and so when i was introduced to spotify i should probably check this out they got me they got me they've they've been getting my money for a long time so uh yeah. i'm sure i'm in that, that well, they, ideal uh, cohort for them <laughs> yeah the, the figure that i'd heard so, so their free to paid conversion rate uh it's about something on the order of 30 percent mm. which is just astronomically high actually relative to you know, other companies that, uh, that have freemium plans. Um, my understanding is that you wouldn't be doing badly if it's more like, you know, call it 5%. Sure. Um, fairly typical, but, uh, so the clock in at 30% means they've really done, done a lot of things. Right. Right. Huh. Huh. I wonder, um, have you read anything around Netflix similar type, I guess they don't have a free model, but they, they also are trying to keep people long-term. And I'm sure this type of thing would be the exact thing that Netflix should be looking at because they've got that, that, that user behavior for a long period of time. Yeah, so for them, because it's a, a free trial as opposed to a freemium plan, you know, obviously they're, they're going to be doing similar you know, kind of back-end engineering. Right. Um, you know, but they're, what they would be interested in would be the, the conversion from – you know, from free trial usage to to signing up as a function of the number of days since um, since they tried the you know, the free trial. Right. Um, 
So that's the curve that they want to go to one as quickly as they can. Um, so yeah, so for them, you know, it would, it would really be, you know, what is the assortment of, you know, of content that we can put on the page and what are the, the marketing activities that we can put in front of them uh, that will, you know, maximize the, the, the probability that they're going to convert. Right. Right. That makes sense. These, these are, these are all fun topics to dive into and think about. I'd love to love you to take you back and, and um, to the old days, you know, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you become this uh, marketing scientist? Yeah, it's a, it's a path that, um, that I'm not sure I'd recommend to other people. <laughs> uh, yeah, just kind of all over the place. I, I started, uh, I went to uh, the Warden, I went to, to the University of Pennsylvania for undergraduate. And, okay. uh, and at that point in time, I had primarily focused on finance. I, I was a kind of a dyed-in-the-wool finance person. Um, you know, technically, I was in the M&T program, so I also came out with an engineering degree. But um, yeah, I immediately went back in and joined a, a fundamentals-based hedge fund uh, after graduation. Even uh, before school, did you always know that just like math was the subject or, you know, growing up, was it kind of obvious? That, I mean, what made you choose you know, economics, finance, statistics when you first went to school? Kind of process of elimination. I, I'm joking about this, but I, I really wasn't very good at like reading comprehension. So, <laughs> so sure. sure. But yeah, no, I, I loved math. Uh, that was awesome. definitely, um, yeah, I, had, I was a fish in water with it. And, you know, all credit goes to my parents and especially my mom for uh, grueling math lessons, uh, you know, for many hours over, over my summer breaks. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yep. You're like yeah. the Wayne Gretzky of math. <laughs> you you well, can't have dinner yeah. until you finish these, uh, these next four matrices. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite that bad, but I would Good. say... Uh, <laughs> Early on, I kind of needed that push, and then yeah, uh, you yeah. come some point in the middle of high school, you, know, you kind of the bird developed its own wings, and yeah, kind of had had my own motivation at that point. So um, awesome, but, uh, but so yeah, you, you locked on to math and just hit school hard, and you didn't leave until they, did they kick you out at some point with a PhD, or did you like you said you did you work in between those, or did you go right for the event to invest? Yeah. So after undergrad, so I actually finished undergrad early, uh, in about three and a half years. Um, I had a couple of courses to wrap up, but I, I had finished with school at that point uh, and, and basically went to this fundamentals-based hedge fund for about six years. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, so I had a, a, a number of years just doing kind of the hardcore roll up your sleeves, you know, speak with the management team, understand, um, you know, competitive dynamics within the industry and, wow. and project out you know, the future free cash flows. Um, so I did that for, you know, for again, for about was six that years fun before. For you? Was that like, were you still a fish in water at that point? I, yeah, it, it's a, it, it can be very fun. So I, wow. I personally really, it, it, as far as, as far as day jobs are concerned, yeah. um, for me, that's about as good as you can get because you're constantly diving into new situations. You just need to kind of peel apart you know, what's the truth here? And, uh, yeah. and you have this very objective yardstick for success. You know, if you make money or not, <laughs> right. You know? So yeah. most professions, it's not, you know, the success, professional success and, and, and the, the measure that gets you there, you know, aren't necessarily as closely linked together. Right. Um, so, 
There could be more yeah, politics look- and more gray area, but not with money. It's like, did, was there a return or not? How did we do? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the reason I left, you know, this was, you know, come 2011, you know, 2012, it was really, that was the last chance I had. I felt to be able to go back and get a PhD in statistics because, um, yeah, I can imagine in other disciplines, it could be a little bit easier to make a transition after a longer period of time, but something like statistics is, you know, it's basically mathematics, like mathematics or physics, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, you're computing, you're doing measure theory, you know, the, the level of, uh, of quant is, is, um, is very, very high. So, so you can get rusty really easily. <laughs> did you get soft out in the business world? I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I had to spend a good six months where I just locked myself up in a library pretty much, um, wow. before school started. And, uh, and that was just enough to kind of get me over the hump where I felt comfortable, you know, with, you know, with classes in that first year. Wow. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously you seem like that. a really smart guy. So to hear that you had to like play catch up after uh, being at the hedge fund, it's like, man, I can't imagine what that was like. And, uh, but obviously you're probably glad you did invested that time. Oh yeah. I mean, in retrospect, yeah, I, I'm so happy that, that I made that move and that, you know, you know, God bless my wife for, you know, kind of staying with me. And you know, here, here's somebody who had been working at a hedge fund who's now going back to a PhD site then, you know, that's uh, uh, true. That's a big hey, life change. Hedge fund isn't exactly the lowest paying job on, in, in the world either. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wow. So on the one side, it means you've got, uh, you know, a bank account <laughs> to fall back right. on. You're not going to run out of money. Uh, but the flip side is the golden handcuffs and, uh, um, and all the friends that, you know, you'd, you'd hung out with, you know, they all kind of stay in the profession and you know, what the heck is Dan doing? Um, so, yeah, so there school, were a couple years or pass me another martini. <laughs> yeah. What a loser. <laughs> uh, right. We don't need to speak to a PhD student. So, um, yeah, so kind of getting through all that. Uh, but yeah, uh, it was kind of in the middle of the PhD that I made this pivot into, into marketing. And, uh, Interesting. and even that was, that was, uh, basically through just a, a mutual friend that someone had said, um, you know, you, you're going to really kick it off speaking with this Pete Fader guy. And, uh, <laughs> and I just distinctly remember, yeah, kind of going up to the seventh floor at that, you know, one time and, uh, and, and we really did kind of kick Where it off. Where did you meet? Uh, Where did you meet him? Was it at Wharton? Oh, it was at Wharton. Right. So you went there, he was, was he teaching there at the time? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So this was, uh, I believe in the second year of the program. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so he was teaching there and yeah. Yeah, so I just kind of literally just went a few floors up, you know, from the fourth floor to the seventh floor. Um, and, uh, you were in the same yeah, building, the, the same building. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Had you ever seen each other or just large building? I, I, I probably saw him. Uh, I never took his class when I was in undergrad, but, uh, I had friends who had said, you know, you should take this class. It's, it was amazing. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was technically a marketing class and right. uh, I fulfilled like all my requirements for my statistics concentration. You know, so, um, so there just wasn't, there wasn't an opening there, but, uh, right. but yeah, so that, that's part of the irony that even though, um, you know, we ended up, I ended up peeing his class, you know, a few years. Um, oh, I never really? uh, formally taken it myself. So you had never taken it, but you end up TAing it just from conversations. Um, what was that like? What was that like when you first met that conversation? 
did you hit it off right away or was he in marketing land and you were in stats or, or did it kind of it just it blended really easily no it blended very very easily wow so um yeah so pete he um he is a very empirical prediction-minded person okay. and um and as a stats phd you know, actually the paper that i had written which prompted that discussion it was a just this prediction paper, you know, where he said, you know, we've got this new methodology and it can predict the future better. And, um, and you know, so right away that, that focus and, and, um, the mutual kind of respect for that is the end goal, uh, I think made it a much closer fit than, you know, other people within marketing who are, are more focused on, on other goals, you know, besides prediction. Right. Right. The more immediate goal of a lead or a sale, to uh, our earlier conversation um were, did your stats f friends and colleagues think you were crazy to, to be talking to marketing uh they you know th thankfully uh, wharton is a wonderful school and those divisions um you know they they're reasonably in sync with each other so you know we did yeah. need to figure out some things you know with with budgeting you know that uh, yeah. you know, if i'm teeing a, a marketing course you know so you know, I'm getting paid this, this marketing, th th sorry, I'm, I'm getting paid this PhD stipend ostensibly from the stat department. Um, so just kind of, there were details that we had to work out along those so, lines. But, some details. Yeah. To, some conversations to have, uh, but it sounds like it worked it out. And so you you TA'd his class for several years. Yeah. Yeah. I did his class for a couple of years. Um, obviously the material that he was teaching you know, by that point, we were working on multiple projects together mm. where essentially they were using, you know, more advanced versions of the sort of models that he was covering. So, um, so hopefully, hopefully no knowledge gaps there, but, uh, right. wow. yeah, but, um, but yeah, it really helps to, to get to, to, to really internalize the philosophy and, and the models on a, on a, a much more fundamental level, you know, by just kind of sitting in on the classes and, and hearing him, you know, talk about them. Yeah. You know, I had a chance, as you mentioned earlier, I had a chance to chat with him, on this show for something like an hour and a half roundup. But so a good solid hour. And just from that, I was like, Oh, wow. See, I was, I was traditionally more of a terrible student. Um, but it was either the subject matter or the teacher. Um, and sometimes both. Uh, but, but after listening to him, I was like, I would take that course. I, I would take that course. I would go to warden. Like, he, like that experience, I was like, oh, okay, I see. This is education. Like this is what it should be here. Is um, and so I can only imagine, you know, being a part of those yeah. classes year after year, what your experiences were like. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's definitely been a role model to follow. He's a uh, he's an amazing teacher in addition to just being an amazing human being. So, um, yeah, so I think uh, a lot of the aspects of my class, um, my class is is fundamentally a bit different from his there's a lot of overlap between two obviously the probability model are you a better but... teacher oh <laughs> i'm sure i'm worse just trying to get you in trouble worse, but... <laughs> hey peter how's it going <laughs> this class is terrible <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah it's uh it's also fundamentally it's just a different course so right. he uh he really puts the students uh through the ringer with um purely with the with the models and um and I think that that's amazing. I think mm. that uh, the students come out with a much deeper understanding of, of all the models and how they work. Um, my students, I don't put them quite as much to the ringer. There are a, a few, you know, a few areas of the course where 
Now, so you kind of, the math is, is, it's a bit hairy. Uh, I'll go through some of the math, but then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a spreadsheet that will have macros in it that will allow you to run the model and, mm. uh, and it will do some of that heavy lifting for you. Um, so they get the benefit of having the model understanding the philosophy. Some of the math details, you know, they won't, they won't fully have, but, right. uh, but, you know, what a good teaser. You know, if, if they do end up wanting to use that model uh, for real and, uh, and that provides them context to, to go deeper into the math, um, you know, then, then they can do so. Um, but, uh, you know, but there's, there's pros and cons to, to both approaches. And in, in that co- course you're describing, is that like a graduate level course? Do you have a lot of folks coming back in who were in business or maybe still are? Uh, so this is, yeah, it's offered to both the undergrads and the MBAs. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so I get both. Um, now, thankfully, um, you know, to the point about taking the deeper dive, uh, the students, a bunch of them, you know, on the order of 15 of them, have been uh, foolish enough to come back with me for an independent study next semester. Oh, no. So we'll be, yeah, kind of bringing the models to life with, uh, you know, hopefully with a couple real companies and just building out, you know, like the book for the course that yeah. they've kind of offered to, to do that. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, if you can kind of pique their interest, you know, just enough, give them enough exposure, of, you know, hopefully you can kind of create that second, um, that second round of, of learning uh, for the ones who are truly interested in, in kind of taking it to that next level. Wow. Well, what made that, was it inevitable that after you graduated you got that PhD that, you know, it, you could have gone back into, would you go back into the hedge, but you're like, Hey, let me maybe go be a professor. What was that decision making process for you? Yeah. So once I made the pivot into marketing, um, it's funny cause then I had to solve all this previous, you know, you can call it baggage or you can call it previous knowledge. Sure. <laughs> kind of wisdom. Both. It's wisdom. Uh, in finance. Yeah. And so you kind of basically customer based corporate valuation. I've said it's, the intersection of, of finance, marketing, and statistics, you know, because right. you need the finance to speak the language, to have the proper corporate valuation framework. You need the statistics to do, you know, the right predictive modeling for what the customers will do, you know, especially when uh, the data is fairly limited. And uh, the marketing, obviously, and you know, we're working with the customers and we're predicting their, their future behavior. So yeah. you know, clear implications there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what, what led to customer-based corporate valuation, which again, you know, brought me a little bit closer to the finance world than I would have otherwise been you know, had I right. just kind of gone the traditional, you know, marketing stat route. Um, yeah, in terms of going back to, to a hedge fund, um, you know, certainly, you know, I, I would need to be employed. So, um, <laughs> you know, so, so goal number one was to be a marketing professor. But, you know, if, if I gave it my very best shot and everyone slammed the door on me, then... Uh, you can always pay the bill somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, yeah. you, you really wanted to, to be able to continue to work with theories and practice and, and students and learning that same kind of experience you had had with, with Peter. And so the goal was to be a professor and now you are. That was a big reason for going back for the PhD in the first place. Really? You know? So really? Yeah. So that's uh yeah. And going back to the hedge fund experience. Um, yeah. I almost feel, um, uh, that I've gotten super lucky in that way mm-hmm. that uh, even though that was um, it was a lot of fun uh, for for me, this is definitely a lot better 
because uh, you'll spend, you know, nine months uh, just thinking about one stinking problem. And, uh, <laughs> and for some people, sure, that would be insanity. You know, they would hate that. Um, for me, if it's a fun thing, I'm very happy to just, you know, singularly focus on it uh, and just do it until it's done. Right. Um, so, yes, it's, for, for me, it's been you know, e- even better than the hedge fund was. That's fantastic. I mean, that's, that's so exciting. You know, and, and now essentially you, you, you have your own partner, you, you're, you know, theta equity and having, having, you know, sold Zodiac to Nike, you're doing all those things much above and beyond where you would have been, had you had stayed with everyone else who was just doing, just doing the numbers. So that's pretty impressive. If you were to, here's a hypothetical for you. If you were to hop in a time machine and uh, travel back to, we typically say like the beginning of your career. So that could be maybe when you graduated or, you know, you're, you're at the hedge fund now and you could advise yourself on, give yourself some pointers or some recommendations. What would you tell yourself? I don't know. Yeah, that's the thing is I don't know if, um, you kind of, you're given the personality that you're given and it leads to, you know, it comes associated with it, all the, the pros and the cons that, you know, that, that form your personality. So I don't know if I listen to myself. <laughs> right. I think like, if, get out of here. If, future I told, me. <laughs> if I knew it was future me, um, then that would make things a little bit easier. It is. But, it's uh, future you. Like you see yourself and you're like, Hey, it's like Marty McFly. Can you like, Hey, it's me. I'm older and wiser now. Here's what I want to tell you. What any, any advice you pass on to yourself? Well, um, you know, just thinking in simple terms, which again, I, I could be completely off. <laughs> if I thought about it longer, maybe there's some, some other better path, but sure. uh, if this is what's been the most fun, um, you know, probably a few years uh, in some sort of finance capacity and then make the pivot straight on back into, you know, into academia. Right. Um, yeah. I think that might, uh, that might be a bit more efficient. So you get the, the finance background that you'd really need to, to be able to, you know, to jump into a topic like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't, you're not out for so long that, you know, there's all these, all those rust in the cobwebs that, uh, that form, you know, for having not having done an integral in six years. <laughs> so. Right. Right. Save yourself some of the yeah. uh, early AM library study time getting back in there sooner. Um, maybe, maybe, Hey, there's this guy named Peter Fader. He has this course. Try to squeeze that into your, uh, <laughs> to your schedule yeah. sooner than later. Uh, that and, uh, and eat your vegetables. <laughs> and eat your vegetables. You, I'm going to yeah. need those minerals yeah. later on in life. <laughs> no, I was, uh, and I'm still a little bit bad, but um, yeah, I was very big on, I just want to do as much as I can. And so, mm. uh, by the end of undergrad, I was kind of hauling in two all nighters every week wow. and, uh, eating very poorly, just lifestyle was not great. Um, so, you know, invest in your health. You know, I think you, you'll never get it back. And a lot of people, you, you say that to somebody and, and, um, say, yeah, yeah, I know, you know, but I'll do it. They stuff their the face with Doritos chugged yeah, down some nine point, years. Yeah, something can happen, and yeah. uh, and you you don't you don't get it back. So, True. Um, 
Yeah. It's, and so now you're, you're running. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like you made that change. Like you're running karate, taekwondo. Yeah. So I'm not as, as, um, I don't know if the word's ascetic or, or what dogmatic as I used to be, but, uh, mm. Yeah, I've been I've kind of turned turned that around considerably. So I'm still pulling an all nighter a week because um, now now I've got a two year old baby at home and yeah uh, I know that the, I know that version. Stop. Yeah, two. You yeah, know what they say is the terrible twos, but it's not even right. Three is actually worse than two. Just so you know, just I'll do a little <laughs> forecasting based on customer lifetime value for you. Three is worse, but don't worry, it gets better yeah. after that. Well, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, we haven't experienced the terrible twos. Yeah, for us, it's been uh, yeah, it's really been totally fine. Yeah, uh, no, it, same here. Just wait, just you wait. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, yeah. the older they get, you know, the the um, the more fun, the more interaction you can have. I mean, they're great little snuggle monsters early on when they're sleeping, but um, but as they get older, they do different things. And I, even today, my son John shared with me this book it's it's blank and it's got all these different pictures on it of like people and dogs and stuff but they have no eyes and face mouth anything and he had used stickers from the back of the book and this is what you do with this particular i'd never seen this kind of book before and you you put the eyes in there and you choose what eyes you want and and you choose like mm -hmm. a mouth or a grin i was impressed i was flipping through the book i'm like oh these all make a lot of sense and so as they get older they just start surprising you in weird ways yeah yeah it's uh yeah we're we're it's been an amazing journey. We wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Boy, girl, but, uh, a girl, girl. Yeah. Ah, girls are great. Yeah. Gotta tell you, they're, yeah. they're pretty, pretty special. Um, yeah. fantastic. Well, what, what, yeah. what's next for you? I do you, do you, where do you build on with these courses? You've got some independent studies and that's going to, that's going to be a lot of juggling, but it, what, do you see this growing or is it, are you refining it? Uh, Growing, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, I've got uh, three papers in various stages uh, that are solely, you know, the, the sole purpose is to kind of keep moving the whole movement forward. So, you nice. know, one that you know, really helps lay the underlying framework for, you know, why CBCD makes sense. Um, another, you know, extending the methodology to incorporate other data sources. So, right. you know, historically it's all been, you know, let's comb through the, the 10K, the 10Q, you know, the other investor presentations, et cetera, et cetera, and use that data to, to you know, to, to forecast what, you know, the future customer measures are going to be. And uh, this next one is saying, well, you know, there's also this credit card panel data you know, that um, the hedge funds are consuming, you know, voraciously. So mm. let's bring that in in conjunction with the SEC data and, uh, and, and use that to make even better predictions than right. if we had either the one or the other on their own. So I sense a trend, um, more data connected, better decisions in the outcome. Yeah. To, so there's a, a yeah, this whole stream of academic work. And I think the other thing is we'd really like to, to start, you know, changing policy a little bit. Mm. So, you know, we've got a series of initiatives that are coming up very shortly, which um, actually one of them is going to break in six days. Um, but as part of it, uh, you know, myself, uh, Peter Fader, and a few of our colleagues uh, were sending letters to the Financial and Accounting Standards Board, wow. FASB, to uh, just kind of advocate for more customer-related disclosures to help investors make better wow. decisions and 
Yeah. yeah so, so you get we, that data that you can plug it into your formulas and your models. Yeah. We think it's just, it's good for everybody that um, yeah. companies you know, to their oftentimes, you know, like publicly traded companies will get a bad rap that they're, they act myopically. And oftentimes they may take actions that, you know, kind of to the detriment of their long-term value by shortchanging the customer. Right. And, uh, and what we would say is, you know, part of the reason is investors are not given the data about the health of the customer that they need to be able to, to see the damage that the companies are doing. And so if a company knows that they're going to, to miss earnings this quarter because, um, you know, because they didn't kind of cut back on their marketing budget a bit, um, you know, they're going to cut back on the marketing budget, you know, but if, if that shows up in this customer measure, then that's going to give them pause, you know? So, um, yeah, so we, we think that it's going to, we think that it's going to lead to companies making better decisions for their own long-term value in addition to being better for their customers and, you know, giving us more, you know, kind of fodder to play with as, uh, as modelers. Right. Interesting. Have you bumped into the WeWork company or that situation? Yeah, so we looked into their filing and uh, and they disclosed some interesting data, but unfortunately it wasn't quite enough for us to be able to run our model. Yeah, um, probably for good reason yeah. because I, I hear that they're, they, may, they may have some something going on underneath there that is not nearly as you know, profitable. I, it's not even profitable, but not nearly as healthy as, as investors might like it to be. It's interesting. When it speaks to this, I think this potentially very promising academic paper that uh, you know, kind of revolves around the strategic nature of, of companies' disclosure uh, of data. That, right. Uh, you know, if they disclose the right data, you know, in theory, you know, if, if the unit economics are negative, then, um, then it would be shooting themselves in the foot. It would. Know, so they wouldn't want to put it, put it out there. So, um, so you kind of have this uh, catch-22 that yeah. the companies that put it out there, you're like, I know that you're only putting it out there because it's good. And maybe there's this element that you got a little bit lucky, you know? And so, you know, once we kind of move into, you know, once the, the company IPOs, maybe we're going to start seeing some weakness there. Uh, whereas the companies that don't disclose, you know, maybe they're trying to hide, hide poor performance. Right. Um, maybe there's some pressure so. there that happens, whether, whether the policy goes through or not, you know, those that don't disclose, it gets to one, the point where they're probably hiding something oh, for the investment. No, that, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, yeah we're pushing, um, I think our primary growth vector, we think is going to be through the investment community because they, yeah. they just want, they want to make informed decisions. They don't want to yeah. get hosed by companies like WeWork. So, um, and they'll file lawsuits. You know, they'll say, yeah. you, di- you didn't inform us. You know, right. If we had known this, then we wouldn't have invested. Um, so they could force the companies to disclose these measures, even though the companies don't you know, formally have to. And even if it's not public, maybe they're just, well, I guess they'd have to disclose it to everybody, but um, maybe you don't get a rating, you know, you don't get a letter grade or a buy or no buy or anything. If you'll, you'll, you'll be an NA on our chart. If you don't disclose those things or have a, no, it'd be worse than an A. Yeah. We would yeah. say if, uh, if we have the right statistical model and it is true that disclosure is strategic, we could infer just how bad it is because yeah. they didn't disclose, you know? So true. Uh, so that's, that, that's what we're hoping to do. That, oh, that's cool. That there will actually be a, a, a penalty <laughs> associated with non-disclosure because the model will infer that they're hiding something. Wow. So 
Yeah. I feel like I want to queue up the cops theme song for you right now. Just be like, we're coming. (laughs) We're coming. (laughs) Well, this has been awesome. You know, thank you so much for coming on here. Where can people connect with you? They want to learn more, find out more, follow your, your update that comes out in six days or so. What are some good links? LinkedIn, Twitter, throw some URLs at us and we'll put them in the show. notes. Yeah. So LinkedIn and Twitter, those will be the best. I, um, for good or for bad, I very regularly will comment on, on all things customer uh, on both on both social media. So, yeah, so the Twitter handle is uh, D underscore Macar, M-C-C-A-R. Okay. And the, yeah, the LinkedIn, you can just kind of look up Daniel McCarthy Emery, and that should, uh, that should pull me right up. Great. Um, but yeah, would love to, to connect with anybody and everybody. And um, by all means, if uh if you want to be a part of the conversation, you know, we've had some really active, vigorous ones, especially with Peloton most recently. Uh, so oh, interesting. as part of that conversation. Yeah. That's in the news right now for sure. Um, and, and in terms of um, where people can, uh, they want to go get some schooling and education, head over down to Atlanta, hit up Emory. Is that, you know, the case Sign yeah. up for some marketing classes, yeah. go yeah, get Emory your degree. University, we, we would love to have you. So, uh, yeah, so we've got a variety of programs for those who are interested. Obviously, you'll probably be at the MBA level, but you know, I, I teach not only the, the full-time MBAs, but also uh, the evening MBAs, oh, you know, nice. which could be an interesting option for people who you know, don't want to you know, quit their job <laughs> for, right. a, for a year, two years. Right. So, but it worked for you, so maybe. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks I, again, I, man. I, I appreciate it. This yeah. has been a blast having conversations like this. It, yeah, some have been challenging and I've had to really stretch my brain, but I feel like I've, I've gained, I've learned a lot from this conversation. Well, now thank you for, for thinking of me and yeah, I, I really enjoyed it a lot as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And for those listening, if you learned something and I know you did, cause I did, my brain is smoking right now and I literally have two pages of notes over here. Um, so much for a bad student, but uh, yeah, if you learn something, uh, then share this episode with someone else. Be a thought leader to even one or two people, um, especially as it, it ties into customer value, making decisions based on long-term results, not just that that you know flash-in-the-pan results. That'll just make us all better marketers that way. So definitely share this with everyone else. And Dan, thanks again, man. I appreciate you coming on here. Yeah, that's no, my pleasure. Yeah, looking forward to hopefully speaking again soon. Yeah, we'll definitely have to keep tabs on how things are going. For sure. And for everyone else out there, hey, we will catch you all next time. This has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. See ya.